This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for July 24th, 2020. Josh explains why an outage at Cloudflare affected many other websites. We know more about the recent Twitter hack. And are smart locks really safe? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing okay. Lovely day here in the UK. We have clouds. <laughs> Is there a flare in the cloud? Ah, uh, no, there's not. That's funny because that's funny. It's pretty good. That's clever because we were going to talk about <laughs> Cloudflare, weren't we? Um, that wasn't going to be our first story, but now that well, you've made the segue, <laughs> let's talk about Cloudflare. Yeah, so there was an interesting thing that happened uh, this past week, and this happens from time to time on the internet, where some big internet backbone um, uh, goes out, and sometimes whole sections of the internet just seem to just stop working. And that was something that uh, happened on July 17th. Explain what an internet backbone is for those who don't know. Well, um, basically, there's key infrastructure that kind of underlies the, you know, the whole internet. It's not just, you know, two people who have a computer talking to each other. I mean, there's, there's stuff in between. And so you have your internet service provider, but, um, there are, uh, basically these big pipes, um, that data travels on and a lot of different companies have different, um, agreements with each other to have, you know, data travel at certain speeds and all this sort of thing. And, um, Cloudflare, among other things, um, Cloudflare is known for a lot of different things, but one of the things that, that they do is they do, um, what's called caching. They do uh, denial of service pr- protection and a number of other things, uh, related to that. And so basically a lot of websites, before you can actually get to the website, you're, you're actually going through Cloudflare before you're getting to the server that hosts that content. Actually, one of the things that I've noticed just in the past day, I've been using a different VPN server. And so I've noticed that I'm getting a lot of these Cloudflare captchas that are coming up and saying, oh, you need to verify that you're not a bot before you connect um, to this website. And so they'll make me, you know, uh, pick a bunch of buses out of out of some pictures or something like that. Crosswalks. I get yeah. crosswalks a lot. Which apparently means that that particular VPN server that I'm connected to, apparently some people who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing have probably connected to that ser- to that VPN server recently. And so Cloudflare is doing what it's supposed to do and trying to protect that website from getting attacked. I don't think there's any malicious users. I think what happens is there are so many users coming from a single IP address that it looks like there's a lot of traffic coming from one address. Because when you're going through a VPN, the outgoing address is just one address, could be for thousands of people. Right. That's absolutely true. So 
Um, in any case, uh, Cloudflare had a non-security related outage, um, but we, we thought it was worth um, worth mentioning that this can happen from time to time. And just because it seems like the whole internet is down or large sections of it are down, that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is attacking the internet. Um, it could just mean that uh, what, you know one of these uh, types of companies is having a major outage. Usually when this sort of thing happens, it doesn't last very long. And this happened, um, when this happened on July 17th, it was less than half an hour, uh, the total downtime. And, um, and basically it was a configuration error. So they made a mistake, um, and they fixed it, um, relatively quickly. Um, I think a lot of the companies that they were protecting would have preferred to not be down for almost half an hour. Um, but, uh, essentially it's, it's, it's worth mentioning that this sort of thing does happen from time to time. I don't know if we've really mentioned these massive internet outages on the podcast before. No, I don't think so. And it is important to realize, I I think a better metaphor for what the backbone is, is they're like the freeways, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get to the off ramps to the different locations when you get to websites. Um, I, I don't think we've had a big outage like this in a long time that, that we would have mentioned, um, I don't know about you, but if you click a link or tap a link, do you find that like after three seconds, if the page doesn't load, you just go away or reload the page or something? Yeah. Yeah. Because you start to wonder like, okay, well, do I have a bad connection? Is my Wi-Fi down? Or, you know, you do start to wonder after even a couple of seconds, even if it's like more than a second, you automatically just wonder these days. And back unless in the you're days, out on mobile, unless you're out on your mobile phone or something when you know the data is slower. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I can, I can remember the days of dial up when it would take oh, 20 yeah. seconds for a page to start loading sometimes. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Back when we had dial up internet and, you know, 14, 400 baud modems and things like that, you know, um, even 56 K modems, uh, by today's standards, are extremely slow. Wouldn't it be great right now to have that modem connection sound in the podcast so people who've never heard it can hear what it sounds like? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure uh, Victor can drop one in for us. So what's really useful when this happens is because there are outages. Every once in a while, Facebook goes down or Instagram goes down or Apple services go down. Um, there are a lot of websites that can check if a website is down or if it's just you. Um, the first one that comes up in my Google search is, is it downrightnow.com? And <laughs> so what these websites do is they have a number of servers in different locations around the country, around the world, and you put in a website, they'll tell you if they're up. For the main websites, they're constantly checking. So I'm looking Netflix, YouTube, Google, uh, WhatsApp, Instagram, all of these are up. Um, Calendar.yahoo.com is down. Um, MyEarthLink.net, does anyone use EarthLink? Um, so, <laughs> so if you think a website is down, um, this is a good way to check because it could be your Wi-Fi, it could be your mobile connection, it could be your ISP, it could be anything. Right. And there, there's a lot of sites that do something like this. So if the particular site that you're trying to check and see whether something is down is not working for you as right. expected. If they're down. <laughs> well, they may be down or they actually may be able to connect to a site. But if you go to another one of these services, right. they may not be able to. So that yeah. that's another thing you can test. Um, the, the one that I typically use is down for everyone or just me is what it's called. <laughs> 
Okay, so last week we talked about the great Twitter hack of 2020. And just to refresh people's memory, uh, a bunch of big accounts got hacked and there were cryptocurrency scam tweets that were um, sent from them. Twitter shut off the ability for all verified accounts to tweet for a couple of hours in order to protect. And then they came back. Now, Twitter has been really, really upfront in explaining what happened. So they found that there were a total of 130 accounts that were targeted by attackers. 45 accounts had tweets sent by attackers. 36 had direct messages accessed. And eight accounts had an archive of your Twitter data downloaded. Now, your Twitter data is all your tweets, all your direct messages. Um, they said that these eight accounts were, none of them were verified, but of the 36 accounts whose DMs were accessed, well, they didn't say whether they were verified or not. And that leads us to speculate that, yes, maybe Joe Biden, maybe Elon Musk, maybe Jeff Bezos, uh, maybe all these people had their direct messages accessed, read, screenshotted, because I can't really find a way to export a thread without downloading all your Twitter data. But remember that when you're seeing direct messages, you're not just seeing the side from Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. You're seeing the people to whom they're sending the direct messages to as well. You're seeing both sides of a communication. So there could be a lot of high-profile people whose direct messages were accessed and at least copied or screenshotted in a period of a couple of hours. The time it takes to go through direct messages, you maybe not get too far in that time. Right. So I, I guess the the interesting thing here is that um, we, we do know that direct messages were accessed by these attackers. Um, and we have a little bit more detail about the attackers now as well. Uh, there was a New York Times article. Also, Brian Krebs is an independent reporter who also uh, reported on this. And um, evidently, it seems like this was not a nation state sponsored attack, uh, which a lot of people I think were really concerned that it might have been. Um, but in reality, it seems like this was mainly um, your run of the mill kind of hackers who are trying to get street cred or make a quick buck with Bitcoin or, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to access these one character Twitter accounts like at six, you know, or, or, um, L or I was one of the other ones. B was but another one. B. Yeah. So apparently there are some people with these vanity Twitter usernames, um, because they got in before anyone else did. And so they got a one character username and so these are apparently prime targets for a select group of hackers that find it really cool to try to get access to these accounts. Um, and so those were among the accounts that were targeted, in addition to a lot of these verified accounts. Um, it's worth pointing out that one of the main hackers here, his handle was Kirk. I admit I had nothing to do with this. I have alibis, um, <laughs> nothing to do. I find the coincidence interesting. I was saying to Josh before the show, imagine if the other hacker was named Josh. We'd know it was a listener of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty suspicious. Uh, but no, the other guy uh, who is named is named Joseph, not Josh. So different guy. That's close. It's close. <laughs> okay. I've got a brief story about something that happened to me the other day. Um, 
And this is the reason I want to discuss this is because it, it set off my spidey sense when I got this email. I lived near Stratford upon Avon, and the Stratford on Avon District Council is the name, and that covers the local government to cover Stratford and the surrounding villages and towns. And they sent me an email saying, Well, you need to update your information on the electoral roll, which is the voter registration information. But this information is also used by credit bureaus to verify your address. So this is kind of important information. And they sent me an email with a link to a website that was not a .gov.uk or .uk at all. I won't mention the name of the website, but it was a, a domain that looked like, well, yeah, this doesn't make sense for a government website. I immediately assumed it was phishing. So I picked up the phone and I called up the Stratford District Council and the person who was responsible for the email. Um, I spoke to him and he was extremely surprised that I had this reaction. Um, I also posted this to our local Facebook group and a number of people said, yeah, I got emails too and I thought it was phishing. Not only do we not know how the data is being used? There was no GDPR um, notification. And to top it off, to be able to access and potentially change my data, I had to enter a unique security code, which is in two parts, part one and part two, both of which were in the email. <laughs> it's like they did so many things wrong with this email and the website. Now, I filed a, an actual formal complaint, contacted my MP, so I want to see how this turns out. But this is just like an example of clueless people running things, handling data, making things that you don't know how secure they are. And, you know, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for phishing scams, but a lot of people aren't. And that shows how easy it would be to fool other people with the same email going to a different domain because no one knows what this domain is. Yeah, that's very strange. Um, and also not entirely unprecedented. I mean, there've certainly been cases in the past where um, government agencies have done something like this, um, you know, used a website that wasn't .gov or, or sent an email that sort of looked like a phishing email. Um, and, you know, what, what can you do? Well, one of the things that you can do um, is, you know, of course, you can try to to validate this. Um, one, one thing that you could do is, um, like Kirk did, you can look up the phone number and don't, and by the way, don't trust whatever phone number is in the email because you don't know that that's not, uh, the, the hacker or the fisher, you know, trying to, uh, uh, to scam you as well. It could be that they're giving their phone number and they, they might be local to you even. So it might even look like a legit number. Um, but if you look up that number on what you know is the official website uh, and call that phone number, there ought to be somebody there who can tell you if, you know, that email campaign is legitimate, if it really went out, they should be able to answer those kind of questions for you if you talk to a human, if you're able to talk to get through to a human uh, calling one of those type of numbers. Yeah, at this level of local government, it's pretty easy. Um, but it's true that if it goes up to another level, it's a lot more difficult. The thing is, we shouldn't have to worry about this. They should think about this when they craft these emails to make sure that they don't look suspicious and that they don't contain the unique security code in plain text in the email. I mean, <laughs> that's just a level of cluelessness. Anyway, um, we've got a Zoom zinger this week. Zoom introduces all-in-one home communications appliance for $599. It is a standalone 27-inch screen with three wide-angle cameras designed for high-resolution video, and it has eight microphones. Zoom software is preloaded on the device, and the interface is designed to provide easy access to popular Zoom features. Now, I'm thinking, 
Why do you need a special device to use Zoom when you can use your phone, your laptop, your iMac, or your iPad? And why do you need a 27-inch device just for Zoom? This might be useful for businesses, right? But for home users, I don't get the point. Yeah. Yeah. My my initial reaction to this is, but why? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why why dedicate a 27-inch display that can only be used for Zoom? Um, you probably, if if you're, you know, running a, a company or if you're if you've got an organization that has an IT department, I'm pretty sure that somebody can spare an old computer that can handle Zoom really well. And, uh, and probably even a monitor. And then all you need is, you know, some cheap little webcam or whatever, uh, to use with zoom. Uh, if you really are going to do a lot of zoom meetings though, I just, I still don't understand why you would get a device that only does zoom. That just seems bizarre. You can get an iPad for that. And, and okay, it's 27 inch compared to, let's say a 10 inch iPad, but still, do you really need that much. Uh, it just does. I, I don't know if they understand what the market is there. Again, they're, they're marketing this to home users, not to businesses. And well, while I could understand a business doing it, it would make more sense for business to take um, a Windows laptop and to hook up like a 65 inch TV set to it. Because let's say a business is having meetings with 50 people, you want to be able to see them all. Um, you get a 4K um, Windows PC and you connect it to a TV set. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I was thinking even with your iPad example, um, you know, you could buy an iPad and an Apple TV and uh and you can AirPlay to your television, you know, and and that works too. Um so I, I this just it, it seems kind of crazy. I, I don't really understand what exactly the, the the point of this device is, but um especially with a company that has recently had a lot of security and privacy issues. Um, exactly. John Gruber points this out on Daring Fireball. He's like, who yeah. in their right mind would buy a piece of hardware from that company right now? It's just With cameras seem- and microphones, it may be on all the time, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about smart locks and question whether they're really smart. You already know that Intego loves Macs. After all, Intego has been making world-class Mac security software since 1997. But did you know that Intego Antivirus is also available for Microsoft Windows? If you've got Windows running on your Mac, either in Boot Camp or in a virtual machine like Parallels, VMware, or VirtualBox, make sure to protect it from malware just like you protect macOS with Intego Security Software. Intego Antivirus for Windows is also a great solution for your friends and family members with Windows PCs. Download a free trial of Intego Antivirus for Windows today, and when you're ready to buy, use the link in the show notes for a special discount. Don't use Windows? Don't worry, we've still got a great deal for you. First-time buyers of Mac Premium Bundle X9 can get Intego's powerful Mac security and utility suite at an incredible 40% savings by using coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac, and now for Windows, too. Okay, smart locks. We decided to talk about this because we've been having some off-air discussions about smart home devices. And we've talked about the smart home a little bit. Um, I talked about the security cameras I set up. We've talked about issues around smart devices, that they can be hacked and denial of services. They can be turned into zombies and into botnets. Smart locks are interesting. Josh, would you just 
off the top of your head, would you trust a smart lock? Smart lock being defined as something that works electronically over a network or via Bluetooth, et cetera. Would you trust something like that? Um, as my only lock, like on my front door? No. Yeah. No, yeah. I wouldn't. Okay. I would <laughs> not. Not as my only lock. Now, it is something that I might consider if I had uh, like a, another lock in addition to that. Um, maybe, maybe I would consider it, but not as the sole. So lock. you mean you would have two locks on your front door? One that you unlock with your phone, and the other with a key. Yeah, we should explain one of the advantages or potential advantages of smart locks is that. Um, you can, if somebody's coming over to your house and, and you're not home, you can let them in without having to have given them a physical key in advance. Right. Um, and because you can just open up your app and then, you know, unlock your front door, which is great. Um, where that may not be so great is if somebody hacks into your account, um, or find some other way to bypass that lock or trick that lock into unlocking when it's not supposed to. Um, that's where I feel that a smart lock can really be problematic. Yeah. Uh, so smart locks work essentially in two ways. Some of them work over Wi-Fi and some of them work over Bluetooth. So Wi-Fi is great because, as you say, you've got someone coming over, let's say a dog walker or a cleaner or, or I don't know, your, your cousin who's come in for vacation um, and you want to open the door for them. And you can do that remotely. But the problem is if you can do it remotely, someone else might be able to do it remotely. Either they can hack into the, the, the lock company's server. They can hack if, you, if they steal your phone, they can get into your phone. There's all sorts of ways that they can hack. And the other kind works with Bluetooth. Now, Bluetooth has a range of about 10 meters or 30 feet. So that means you have to be close to the lock. And the advantage there, it's, I mean, that's no better than having a, one of those automatic garage door openers in your car, right? That when you get to the garage, you push it, it opens. Um, it doesn't really offer any advantage other than the fact that you don't need a key to open the lock. You don't need a physical key. So that could be good if you're carrying a lot of things, you get your phone out, or maybe you can even control it with Siri, you know, um, hey, Siri, open my front door. Um, but both of these are electronics and both of them can be hacked. And, you know, I personally, I'd be more worried about the Wi-Fi being hacked. But if you think about the Bluetooth range, I mean, I'm looking out my road. Now, no one parks in front of my house. I'm on a road next to a wheat field. But imagine you're in a city and someone's parked um, on the other side of the street. They're less than 10 meters, less than 30 feet away from your front door. So they could potentially hack your front door uh, over Bluetooth like that. Right. And that is a really important consideration when it comes to to Bluetooth. Um, if If you're at home, then your front door is basically unlocked unless – you know, you're doing something special to make sure that, uh, that that's not the case. Um, but yeah, that is something that, that one should, should carefully consider. So there's, there's a lot of different, um, things that are, are worth thinking about when deciding whether to have a smart lock. And, and when I was talking about having a second lock, I guess my thinking on that is that if I know that I'm not going to have anybody else coming to my home, then I don't mind double locking it and, and requiring a key for, for a physical key for entry. And if there were a situation when like somebody might be coming over to, to visit my house when I'm not there and I want them to be able to come in, then okay, no problem. That would be a situation where that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably be comfortable, uh, you know, just having the one smart lock in place uh, engaged at that particular time. 
Or let's say you're going out for a bike ride or to, to jog or something, and you don't want to take your keys. And in that case, maybe you've got your phone with you and you want to be able to get in without having a key. But of course, then you come up with another problem with smart locks, and they're not really that smart because they need power. Most of them run with batteries, and I know you could probably wire some of them. I have a, a, a ring doorbell like you, and it works with batteries, but you can also wire it so you don't have to keep recharging the battery. If the battery dies, then you can't get in. And most of these locks have a key slot, so you need a normal key to open the lock. <laughs> There's one that's actually quite interesting, and I link in my article on the Integral Max Security blog, a Nest Yale lock. And the only way you can unlock it if the battery dies is by kind of plugging a 9-volt battery at the bottom of it and then pressing the numbers on the keypad. That seems like a lot of work to open a lock. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's probably better than just defaulting to, well, you need a physical key again. Uh, True, because <laughs> you've always got to carry the physical key. So what's interesting is that there are a couple kinds of smart locks. And and I would actually be tempted by the kind that is a, a, just a keypad that you can't open with a phone or Bluetooth, but you don't need a key to open, Right. So you have a code, six, eight, nine digit, whatever it is, and you type that in. So essentially, your lock is your code, and it means you don't need to have a physical key. And, and I would find that quite interesting. You don't have to worry about hacking. If there's no Wi-Fi, there's no Bluetooth. By the way, if you're going to get a lock like that with a keypad, in my opinion, it's very important to make sure that you're choosing one that randomizes the location of those numbers. There should not be physically printed on each of each of those buttons what the number is. Uh, it should dynamically change every time. And here's why. If you have the same code, you don't really change it very often, then those numbers are going to wear down. Or you're going to leave a little bit of oil from your from your fingertips on the, the buttons that you're pressing most often. And so it could be very clear to somebody who just walks up to your door, uh, you know, what's the most common digits are in your code and uh, and which digits are clearly not part of your code. Yeah. Um, when I lived in Paris for many years, um, there are lots of big well, let's call them buildings in Paris, where you come in through a large door and you go into a courtyard, then you have stairs going up into different parts of the building. And these doors always have a code. Um, it's just a code unlocks, um, well, it's this kind of lock, actually. It just electrically unlocks the door. And you can always tell that there's only four buttons that are clean and all the other ones are dirty. So you can just try. And there's no like um, algorithm to say after three tries, it blocks or anything. So it's relatively easy to get into to these things. I, I don't know how many of them – I didn't go into detail about that sort of lock. I don't know how many do change the, the, um, the number position, but that is a good point. Um, w- one of the things that I find is as, as much as I'm getting more into smart home stuff, we've talked about smart lights that I have. We've talked about some security cameras. The, the idea of a lock to me, which is really kind of important, it protects your family, it protects your possessions um, and, and insurance companies. If you have a smart lock that's been – that's not smart enough, you might not be covered if if you're burgled. Um, that sort of idea just goes a step too far for me. You're just not uh, – locks are centuries-old technology, um, if not millennia. Um, they've been refined over years, and you may have seen some really fancy, like, double keys with little dots coming in on the side. I mean, there's some really, you know, high-tech keys and locks out there. Um, I'm not sure that we need to pay what could be 
three to six times as much for a lock um, just for the, the simplicity of, of being able to open it from your phone. That's a fair point. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I, I just have never purchased a smart lock. I, I kind of feel like there, there needs to be a significant value added to um, potentially having these additional risks. And um, I just, I, I haven't seen it yet for me. Um, I, I, you know, my wife has asked me about this from time to time. Hey, what do you think about getting a smart lock? And and uh, this, that's pretty much the conversation that, that we have. Well, there's a possibility of them getting hacked. And I guess it would be cool for certain circumstances. But I think for the most part, I'm, I'm just not entirely comfortable with them. Yeah. And, and then you add all the Internet of Things problems of um, needing firmware updates and what happens when the firmware update doesn't work and then your, your, your lock is bricked. And most of these locks sort of graft onto a deadbolt lock. And as I said, many of them have a key slot in them already. Um, so you could still use them if they're not working. But what's the point of having a lock that doesn't work and then you spend time with tech support? Have you ever had to get tech support for a lock? I mean, seriously, you know, a normal <laughs> key cylinder lock. Yes, no. they get stuck well, or they break or someone sure, breaks them, sure. but but there's no tech support. Um, you'll go for years without it. You can get new keys easily. Um, so it, it to me, it seems like one of those things that's a nice idea, but just not very practical. Now, where they're useful is, I don't know, in Langley, for instance, you go into the CIA and you have this thing with a handprint and an iris scan and other biometrics. And these are multifactorial systems that are necessary to confirm that the people going in are not just allowed to go in, but are the people who are allowed to go in specific people. Well, and of course, these are much more advanced than the typical consumer grade stuff that you can sure. buy on, on Amazon or wherever. Yeah, well, maybe these things trickle down, you know. We, we'll get them sooner or later. The keypads, they go back pretty far, but I'm pretty sure some of the other technologies are things that uh, originally started like that. You know, just like all this technology that we got from NASA going to the moon that trickled down to us. Yeah, in fact, that's true. We we have smarter devices in our pockets than NASA ever had when we first landed on the moon. So, what, Would you trust a smart lock if it had advanced technology like a fingerprint um, identifier or an iris scan or something? Because you, you trust um, Touch ID on your iPhone, right? Yeah, um, well, I, I do, yeah, or Face ID. Um, but these um, – so biometrics – they do tend to be a lot safer. Now, again, if you if you just had a biometric lock on your front door, it may not necessarily have that same advantage of a lot of smart locks where you can unlock it remotely. If if it also had the ability to unlock remotely, um, then that is the weak link, right? It's I mean, it's certainly yeah. a lot easier to hack into somebody's account and unlock their front door than it is to you know pretend uh to have their their iris or their fingerprint or one of these other you know body parts that are very hard to fake okay if anyone listening does have a smart lock um we've got an article on the intego max security blog called are smart locks really that smart drop us a comment tell us which lock you have um why you like it or why you don't until next week josh stay secure all right stay secure Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And 
If you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com